Hello, and welcome to the Laverne Church of Christ podcast, and thank you for joining us. You can find us at 244 Old Nashville Highway, Laverne, Tennessee, 37086. We hope that any time you are in the area, you will stop by and join us for worship. Our Sunday morning worship is at 9 a.m., with Bible classes following. Our Sunday evening worship is at 6 p.m., and we also have a Bible study on Wednesday at 7 p.m. The scripture reading this morning will be from the book of John, chapter 15, verses 18 through 20. And in your pew Bible, that's page, under, page number 956. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than its master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And it is so good to see everybody here today, it really is. Uh, I want to draw attention to the flowers that are on the baptistry there. Those came from the wedding yesterday and display the incredible talent of Sister Kim Gentry, and she is very talented and appreciate that very much. Make sure you admire that and tell her how awesome she is. And I just want to thank all of you who were able to come to the wedding yesterday and let all of you who weren't able know that we took down your names and we went across and <laughs> took note of that. Uh, just kidding. Uh, we, we know not everybody could be there, but those that could, we really appreciated it. And uh, there is now a, another Pappas in the world. We regard that as one of the greatest things possible, and uh, we appreciate your prayers for Logan and Amber, and hopefully when the time comes, we hope that they take a little bit of time uh, just to, you know, get to know each, each other first. We hope that through them, more Pappas will come in the world someday, and, uh, but anyway, we appreciated you, uh, you know, your support, and we would appreciate your continued prayers and encouragement for them. You can see on the screen this morning that... Uh, Hate has become a political issue. You know that. We've been in our series, Hated Now, for a few weeks, and we've got another week in it today. And today we have a very important passage to talk about that is very much misunderstood and very easy to misunderstand. And, and, and just because the Bible was written in the language of, you know, the common man, it, it was written in Koine Greek. The New Testament was written in Koine Greek, which was the language of the streets. It was not classical Greek. The language of, of, you know, classical literature and of the educational institutions. Koine Greek, common Greek. The Greek people spoke in the marketplace. God chose to see to it the New Testament was written in common Greek because he wants everyone to be able to understand his word. But that does not mean that everything that God has said is easy to understand. The same thing is true with the Hebrew in the Old Testament. It, there was nothing particularly scholarly about the Hebrew that was used. It was the language that the ancient Israelites spoke every single day and what they did. But just because the language is understandable, and hopefully you use an English version that you can understand well, if you can understand all the these and the thous and the whithersoever thou goest and all of that stuff, good for you. But if you don't understand all of that, don't use one of the versions like that. Use one you can read and one you can understand, right? But just because you can understand the words does not mean that the concepts do not need to be carefully and wisely and prayerfully interpreted 
based upon the whole big picture story of the Bible. Because if we interpret a, a particular context in a way that violates the spirit of Scripture, we've misunderstood that context. And so we'll talk about that this morning in, in several ways. But first of all, you see on the screen, uh, we have new terms, and they're relatively new, not new this year, but new to our generation. Terms, uh, hate speech is one of those terms. Um, and uh, hate crime is one of those terms. And our culture today is just really fixated on the concept of hate. And there is a whole new group of people that have decided that they're the ones that understand what hatred is. And that they have claimed for themselves the right to define what is hatred and what is not hatred and what is love and what is not. And very often the folks that have made themselves the arbiters of hatred in this world today, they actually are spreading hate in the name of love. And they are claiming that things are, that are not hate, that are actually love, are actually hate. And so deception is rampant when we think about this subject. And so hate has been oversimplified. And it has been politicized by our culture, and we need to be very keenly aware from this. What is hate? Hate, on the one hand, is a secondary emotion flowing from fear, sadness, and or anger. In other words, hate is not something that someone just initially feels for no reason. Hatred is something that develops because of a series of choices that are made based upon someone's perception of something that they fear. They fear something or they fear someone is a threat to something that they love. And because people perceive something as a threat to something they love, they can develop a real antithesis to that. They can develop a real hatred of it because they want to see that thing that threatens what they love destroyed. And so many people will develop the emotion of hatred because of this. And I want to say right here at the outset, the emotion of hatred is one of the most dangerous emotions you can ever feel. And when you feel the emotion of hatred, you ought to push back against that in your spirit with every fiber of your being. But there is another kind of hatred, and it is not an emotion at all. And it is the kind of hatred that is usually in view when we read Bible passages that can be confusing to people today in our world today because they have been taught what hatred is from a world that doesn't understand what the Bible means when the Bible talks about hatred or talks about God hating something. It, we've talked about in this series the fact that love and hate in the Scripture are on a binary. It's one or the other. It's, they're not degrees of love and hate from the Scripture's perspective. There is love and, and one who is living in love and is loyal to love, and that's ultimately loyal to God. And there is, on the other hand, someone who is not loyal to God. And therefore, even if they are striving to be good people, the end result of not being loyal to God is going to be that your love is going to fail at key moments in your life. You are not going to be in a position to actually follow through with doing what love ought to do. Because the only way that a fallen human being learns to love consistently and righteously is in covenant relationship with God. If you're disloyal to the one who is love, 1 John 4 verse 8, you will be a person who hates. And at some point or another, it will dominate your life. And so biblically speaking, hate is not emotional, but it is a rational response to threats. And again, it is a response to things that are perceived to be threats to what is good or what is right or what one loves. And so 
when we read Proverbs chapter 6, beginning in verse 16, I want you to understand, from the perspective of God, this is God's point of view towards things that he recognizes as threats to what is good and right. Listen to what the wise man has to say. Proverbs 6, beginning in verse 16. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Amen. I want to ask you a question before we begin to break this passage down. The question is simply this, where is the commandment in this passage? Now that's an interpretive question. It's a question that I hope you ask of passages like this. Because this passage does not say, you as the follower of God must nurture hatred in your heart. This is wisdom that is intended not simply to be read and then passed over. But this is wisdom that God intends in this context for us to meditate upon so that we will come to a greater understanding of the heart and character of God, our Father. Now that will affect our understanding of commandments and how to obey them. But I want you to recognize there is no commandment in this passage. There is only a description of God's hatred for these seven things. I hope that makes sense. Let's look at the simple meaning of this passage. The simple meaning of this passage can be communicated in the form of a syllogism. For those of you that are masters of the field of logic, you'll know that the syllogism is like the basic way to make a logical statement. There, is, there are two uh, propositions that are being made, a one plus one sort of thing equals two. So there is if a proposition is true, some certain thing is true, it results in in a, a, a statement that, that is derived from those two things that is proven by those two things. Hopefully that makes sense. All right? So here it goes like this. God hates evil. Right? Proverbs 6, 16 and forward proves that point. It teaches us the fact that God hates evil. At least he hates these seven things that we know the Bible teaches are evil. All right? But I would say as a principle, it God hates evil. Now we know from the whole of Scripture that God is good. We'll see that you know, born out here in just a few moments also, but God is good. So if God hates evil, and God alone truly is good, then we can draw the sound conclusion, the logical conclusion from that, that good hates evil. Is that right? It is right. That's the implication of this passage. Again, it's not a commandment. It's a truth. It's just a statement of what happens to be the case. God hates evil because he loves good. Evil always threatens good. There's no situation in which evil can be trusted. Evil is evil. Evil will do evil. Evil backstabs. Evil lies. Evil betrays. Evil destroys. Evil kills. This is what evil does. It perverts. It absolutely ruins everything that it gets a hold of. 
and so having this idea that some in our world have, that light and darkness are just two sides of the divine paradigm of the universe, and each one of us has light within us and has sh shadow within us, and, and, and that we are to try to, to find some kind of balance with that. Maybe even that we're supposed to minimize the evil within us and, and magnify the righteousness. All of that falls short of biblical wisdom and, and frankly, is contradictory to it. The Bible does not deny for one moment the truth about human nature, and that is that in a fallen world we all sin against God, Romans 3.23. Yes, there is uh, darkness within each one of us because of the fall. Yes, we're all tempted to sin, but the Bible never, ever, 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 ever says be okay with that. It never says make peace with evil or darkness within you. It never says that you're aiming to seek a balance in life. What the Bible teaches us consistently, the big picture of Scripture with regard to the subject of evil and sin and unrighteousness and however you want to word it, from, from Genesis to Revelation is you must fight against the evil that is within you and that is within the world with every fiber of your being. There can be no compromise with betrayal. Are you hearing there can be no compromise with lies. There can be no compromise with murder. There can be no compromise with immorality. Good must oppose evil or it becomes evil. That is a bedrock truth. That your life, that your mind, that your way of understanding reality must be built on or you will become a fool. A fool. And you will fall prey to the trickery of Satan. Number three, evil has a heart. And this is where we want to delve a little bit deeper into the passage today. Those of you that are here Wednesday, I filled in for Sean at the invitation Wednesday night and kind of gave a little sneak peek of what we'd be talking about today. But one of the things that I promised is I'd show you the, the poetic structure of this passage in the Hebrew. Hebrew poetry, again, is not characterized by rhyme or meter necessarily, but it's characterized by parallelism. And the poetry in the Hebrew Bible is arranged in different kinds of parallel formats. But the chiastic structure, which is what this is called, where you think of the Greek word key, which is the same as our English X. And so it's kind of an X pattern where you just kind of go down the, the edge of the X to the crux of it and then back down toward the edge again. And that's a construction that was used to artistically arrange statements in Hebrew poetry. And, and you'll find these uh, chiastic structures all over the place both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, because even though the New Testament is written in Greek, it's written by Jews, and uh, for the most part written by Jews, and they're following the Jewish mindset of how to arrange literature and communicate. So you'll see these patterns all over the place. And what happens when you've got a chiastic structure like this is you've, you've got the first line paralleling the last line, the second line paralleling the next to last line, and so on. And there is almost always a central crux in the situation, which is that the heart of whatever communication is being made. And everything else in the structure there is related to that thing that's right in the middle. So as we look at the structure of Proverbs 6, 16 through 19, we have haughty eyes paralleling one who sows discord among brothers. Well, I trust that you know what haughty eyes are. For the sake of the kids that may not yet understand what the word haughty means, because that's not maybe a common word we use anymore. But haughty is stuck up, arrogant. It is condescending. 
It is, it is superior to you or putting on airs of superiority. So when you've seen people that you know that they know that they're better than you, <laughs> have you ever seen anybody that knows that they're better than you and the only reason you know it is because of the way they looked at you? Have you? Then you know what haughty eyes are. And I do know what haughty eyes are. And I think you do too. Now be careful because sometimes looks can be deceiving. You might think something is a haughty look that might not be. But if someone consistently displays that kind of behavior, then it's going to become apparent. Well, we might say this passage teaches us not to look at people with haughty eyes. That would be a, a, a way we reason from the passage. Remember, the passage doesn't command anything directly. It just states a truth, right? But, but it does tell us that God hates haughty eyes. He hates that look of arrogance. Does that make sense? You see how that then would parallel the second one, the end line there, the second A, one who sows discord among brothers. You see, the, the greatest thing that you can do to destroy fellowship, to ruin your family and divide the church is to, to, to accept and embrace the idea that you're better than everybody else around you. See how that makes sense? And so when we read the passage through, we can get the basic meaning, you know, God hates evil, God is good, therefore good hates evil, and there's the simple teaching of this passage, and that gets the point across. But when we do what the wise writer of the wisdom literature and scripture wants us to do, and we take a closer look at the passage, and we say there's something that needs to be broken down here, there's something that needs to be chewed on, meditated upon here, then we see that there is something really deep going on. God is really teaching us something deep about what's going on on the inside of us when he says this about him. So we're made in his likeness. All right, so uh, this is one who is going to sow discord among brothers, who's going to create division. A lying tongue, notice B and B, a false witness who breathes out lies. Now, it doesn't take much explanation there. So lying period, and especially lying that perverts justice. Abominations to God. These things make him sick. Then we have C, hands and feet. Hands that shed innocent blood, murderers. Feet, swift to run to evil. Folks that love doing bad, that are eager, eager to misbehave. God hates that mindset. You see the parallels there? We used to sing, and sometimes maybe we still do to the kids, you know, be careful little Hands what you do, be careful little feet where you go. I think passages like this play into that. But I want you to see right in the middle of this text. It's really the crux of the matter. It's really the issue that the wise man Solomon by the Holy Spirit is conveying to us in this passage. And that is that the issue is really the heart. When we talk about the heart, we, we mean it in, in the biblical sense, the mind. The inner world, the thought process, you know, what's going on inside your noggin, however you want to say it. That's what this passage means by the heart. And so what God hates really, because it, it, it's the thing that creates all the other stuff, what God hates really is the thought process that is devising evil. It's the thought process that is going through the steps of choosing evil. It's the thought process that is trying to figure out ways to do things wrong, that is wanting to do harm, that wants to deceive, that wants to kill, that wants to steal. It is the heart that wants these things. That is the crux of the matter. And that is what God wants us to be meditating upon when we think about this passage. It's the heart. 
The heart is the issue. And of course, all of Scripture bears this out. But we think of Jesus in Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 14. After Jesus called the crowd to him again, he said, Every person should listen to me and understand what I am saying. There is nothing people put into their bodies that makes them unclean. There is nothing people put into their bodies that makes them unclean. People are made unclean by the things that come out of them. And, and we have some versions uh, skip this verse, but let those with ears use them and listen. The passage continues. When Jesus left uh, the people and went into the house, his followers asked him about this story or this teaching, this saying. Jesus said, do you still not understand? Surely you know that nothing that enters someone from the outside can make that person unclean. It does not uh, go into the mind, but into the stomach. Then it goes out of the body. We have Mark giving us this parenthetical statement by inspiration. When Jesus said this, he meant that no longer was any food unclean for people to eat. So if you like bacon, thank God for Jesus in Mark chapter 7, because this is the passage that let God's people loose on the pigs. And uh, the pigs hate Mark 7, I'm sure. If they could read it, they'd hate it with all their hearts, because we found out bacon is really, really yummy, right? So I love Mark 7. It's one of my favorite passages, <laughs> all right? So, but Jesus said the things that come out of people are the things that make them unclean. Look at what? These evil things begin inside people in the mind. Evil thoughts, sexual sins, stealing, murder, adultery, greed, evil actions, lying, doing sinful things, jealousy, speaking evil of others, pride, and, and foolish living. All these evil things come from inside and make people unclean. Jesus makes it very clear what the problem is. It's the same thing Solomon is writing about in Proverbs chapter 6. It's the heart. The heart is the problem. We get this in the Sermon on the Mount. Those of you that have studied the Sermon on the Mount with any depth, you know that after the Beatitudes, the first section is where Jesus is comparing his interpretation of what lawful living looks like and contrasting it to the Pharisees or the leaders of Israel in his time, what their interpretation of the law looked like. You heard it said, but I say to you. The Pharisees are teaching you this is the case, but I'm telling you they're wrong. This is actually what Torah means and what lawful living looks like. And so Matthew 5, 21 and 22, you've heard it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Listen to how Jesus goes for the heart though. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother, some versions say without cause, will be liable to judgment. So what Jesus does in this section, and we don't have time to read it all, but what Jesus does in this section is he goes line by line by line talking about some major sins that people would be regularly taught against in the life of ancient Israel. And he says, listen, you think that murder, the end result of a process, you think that's where the sin happens? Jesus says, no, the sin happened long before the murder is committed when the heart embraced anger and chose it. And fed it. That's where the sin comes from. And so the wisdom of Solomon is also the wisdom of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 3, the Apostle Paul writes, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy, notice, arguments. We destroy arguments. And every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. And so we see even in our spiritual warfare, 
Flesh and blood is not our enemy. Human beings is not our enemy, Ephesians 6. We see in spiritual warfare, the issue is thoughts. The issue is the heart. And the whole aim of Christianity, the whole aim of the Great Commission, the aim of preaching the gospel is to share God's word with hearts. To put God's thoughts into our minds. To convince, to convert, to console, to help people to realize what's right and to recognize within their own hearts what is wrong so that they can wage God's warfare within in their own minds, so that they can purify their thought processes, so that they can recognize roads that will lead to ruin before they're halfway down those roads, so that they can learn the wisdom of God and recognize how to think with God's perspective on things in life, which means you're going to be thinking right. You're going to be thinking with regard to reality. Evil indeed has a heart. The heart is the problem. If the heart is changed, brothers and sisters, the evil will not flow from it. And that is ultimately Jesus' aim. We read in 1 John 4 and verse 8 that God is love. And perhaps you will remember from the first, seri- the first sermon in the series, uh, we looked at 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 5. Talked about it as a little bit of a controlling passage. Because it gives us kind of a comprehensive summary of what the whole Bible is aimed to do. The whole Bible from beginning to end. That's our instruction, by the way. The goal of our instruction is love. Listen to that. The goal of our instruction is love. That's a controlling passage. That's a true north. The Bible tells us set your compasses to this. Everything that God has revealed is intended to teach you to love and to teach you how to love and to transform your heart so that you will love. And not just with some crummy definition the world has for love, but with the love that has been demonstrated by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that perfect self-sacrificial love manifested on the cross and shared with us because of the grace of our Heavenly Father. And so, Proverbs chapter 6 is instruction that is aiming to teach us how to love. And this is what I mean when I say the passage is dangerous if you do not carefully interpret it in light of the whole big picture story of Scripture. You might just read Proverbs 6 beginning in verse 16 and become a hateful soul, misguided, believing that you're doing the work of God by hating people and nothing could be farther from the truth that's not what proverbs 6 is about at all god's hatred is this it is simply complete opposition to evil because evil is completely opposed to love let it sink in you know you can say that in another way god's hatred equals complete opposition to evil because evil is completely opposed to him Because God is love. And so God must oppose it. This is consistently the teaching of Scripture. Psalm 97, verse 10. Oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Amos 5, verse 15. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. Proverbs 8, and verse 13. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance, and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. Do you see the the pattern here we see in Scripture all over the place? The testimony is clear and it is consistent. There's no misunderstanding. 
the fact that there is no peace and there can no pe be, and there can be no peace between good and evil in any way, shape, form, or fashion. So we have this dichotomy between love and hate in Scripture. We talked about the fact that it's a binary, right? Perhaps some of you are already recognizing what. Oh, man, things have kind of always been that way, haven't they? Yes, all the way back to Eden. Our first parents were faced with the choice between love and hate. Do you love God, the Father who's given you life and given you paradise and promised you beautiful and wonderful things? You got no problems whatsoever, no stress, no fear, no reason to be angry, no hatred at all. It was only love, only bliss, only innocent, innocence, and God just gave them one choice. He said, eat of any tree in the garden except that one. That's the only thing. There was the line between good and evil, between righteousness and sin, between love and hate. And Adam and Eve chose hate. They chose hatred. That's what they chose. Now, nobody is saying they fully understood the consequences of the choice that they're making, any more than any of us when we were in our adolescence. And those of you that are in that phase now, and kids not there yet, maybe you can't relate yet, but you will. You'll be able to relate at some point. But every one of us, when we had our Garden of Eden-type moment, sometime in adolescence, when we were faced for the first time, the knowledge that something was wrong that we deeply wanted to do, and even though we knew it was wrong, we chose to do it anyway. We all had that same kind of moment that they had. And, and as a, you know, a, a man who's no longer a teenager was put like that, I can look back on that period of time, and I can tell you I didn't have the slightest idea how serious a thing I was doing. I didn't have any really comprehension of just how big the consequences of evil choices could be how hurtful they could be how much it could destroy nobody messing around with forbidden fruit and wanting to have fun is thinking of destroying their lives and destroying their families and destroying their communities and destroying their culture and destroying the world nobody is thinking about that but let me tell you one person is satan is and that's his agenda and he is deceiving us into doing his work to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's what he's doing. But at some point in time, brothers and sisters, we got to grow up. We got to come to understand that there is no gray area. There is loyalty to Jesus, absolute, uncompromising loyalty to Jesus, and then there is everything else. It's the tree of life versus the tree of knowledge. And the choice is simply that, binary, ones and zeros, ones and zeros, ones and zeros. For those of you that, that understand what that means, I don't fully understand it, but I get the concept there. So there is the tree of life versus the tree of knowledge. There is good versus evil. There is God versus evil. Brothers and sisters, this passage teaches us that evil starts in the heart. Hearts can be full. Hearts can be heavy. Hearts can be sad. Hearts can be broken. But most importantly, hearts can also be changed. They can be changed. And so, brothers and sisters, we need to be warned. Proverbs 6 doesn't teach us to hate anyone. In fact, I'll tell you this. You know, when you look at Proverbs 6 and you say, what does God hate? Well, six things. No, seven God hates. Seven are an abomination to him. You see that those haughty eyes are an abomination. Well, who do eyes belong to? People, right? Yeah. Well, what does God hate? He hates hands that shed innocent blood. What do hands belong to? People, right? Hands belong to people. All right. Well, what does, 
What does a lying tongue belong, belongs to people? Hearts that devise wicked plans. People's hearts. You see there? It would be real easy to come to this passage and say, hey, well, Ephesians 5 verse 1, imitate God as beloved children. God hates people, so I'm going to hate people. But if you do that, you have missed the point of the passage in a major, major, major way. Let me tell you this. Argue all day long about unconditional love and what the Bible says about that or doesn't. Argue all day long, as long as people are this side of the dirt. On Judgment Day, there are going to be a lot of people and when it comes to God's decision, love me, love me not, you call it what you want. On judgment day, there will be a lot of people God pushes the hate button on, and they're gone. Do you understand? That's the truth. But that's God's right, and that's God's job. I don't know that he'll hate the people that he sends to hell. But I am going to tell you this, if it is possible to hate someone, only God can manage it without giving up love. You and I cannot. If you and I start hating people, we're done for. We're done for. It'll destroy us. And so what this passage really teaches us, brothers and sisters, where the command derive from it becomes ours is through the finished work of Christ through his interpretation of the law his manifestation of what the whole thing is about and that's what Paul's talking about when he says the aim of our instruction is love it's all about love why does God hate I'm not going to hate God can hate he can do it righteously it'll eat me up so 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 what do I learn about God in this passage I learn about what he loves you see, because God hates these things that are threats to what he loves. And so the, really the application of Proverbs 6 to us, if it's going to be sound and biblical, is that we should not be arrogant. The application to us is to love humility. God loves humility. That we should be truthful. God loves the truth. So let me ask you a question. Do you love the truth? What about when it'll get you in trouble? Do you love it then too? Because God loves truth, period, not error, not lies. Violence? How about peace? Do you love peace? And you know your heart. You struggle, right? I struggle with my heart. Because very often I feel urges, think things, say things, do things that are evil, hateful, Things that God hates. So what should I do? I need to love what God loves. From the heart. From the heart. I need to be prayerful. I need to be studious. I need to be thoughtful. I need to be submitting my heart to the thought processes of the one who is love. Because if I love everything that God loves then I'll know I won't be doing the things that he hates. Does that make sense? There's a lesson from Proverbs 6. This morning, if you need to respond to the gospel invitation, if you're a person that knows that you have sin in your life, and you understand right from wrong, you get that there are consequences, Jesus is your only hope.
God sent him to die for you to show you his love. God came to love the people that hate him so that we might become people that love like him. That process begins by confessing your faith in Jesus, making the decision to give him your life, submitting the commandment to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. The water's ready. You can be blessed in this way today. And also this morning, if you are a baptized believer and you need the prayers of this church, we would be glad to offer them to heaven on your behalf. The front pews are open. Come as we stand and sing. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. If you have any questions, please email them to us at office at lavernecoc.org. Once again, we thank you for listening, and we hope you have a blessed day.